0: Good morning, everyone. Everyone's sitting comfortably. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government. I'm delighted to have here this morning Dr. Dr. Patrick Valance, chief scientific advisor of the government, and formerly head of the R&D at GSK, which we were just discussing next door. And uh, it, I, it couldn't be a more interesting time to talk about the kind of things we're going to talk about this morning: the government's use of science. Except, as we were agreeing. Next door, there isn't quite a live crisis at the moment on the scale of. Uh,
1: I'm okay with that, actually. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, you've, you've, you've survived the, uh, the Salisbury and so on. Um, Patrick, let's, let's start off by just talking about the, uh, the government scientific um, capacity on its own and when, when it all started. When did the government set up your office?
1: Well, I think the uh, Government Office of Science and the Chief Scientific uh, Advisor has been in a role since about 1946, I think. So I it, think it, em- after it emerged the from the Second World War uh, yes. when I think people turned around and thought, actually, scientists have been rather helpful in terms of some of the things that needed to be done and there needed to be some system to regularise the employment of uh, scientists within the civil service, and a rather wonderfully titled report came out a scientific civil service, and that started the process. Mm.
0: And how, how many are there now?
1: How many it, scientists. You know, scientists in government? Well, how,
0: how, yeah. how do you count it?
1: Uh, well, it, it's self-declared, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, there are at least ten and a half thousand people who self-declare for the government science and engineering profession, and probably a much higher number.
0: Mm. And you were saying that this is mainly hard science, but with some sort of uh, generosity towards so, some of the, the social sciences or some oh, I of think, the behavioral. I think more
1: than generosity yeah. towards I think, I think, you know, my, my view very clearly is that, that, that science is there to try and solve problems and, yeah. and it's a method of solving problems and some of those problems require lab science and some of those problems require social science and most of those problems require interdisciplinary science that spans across multiple areas. So I think to start looking at any scientific problem and saying I'm going to approach that with one technique... Or with one group of scientists is usually not the way to do it
0: mm. so you came in two months ago and what what do you intend to do with well your, think, your yeah. five years as as, as you've got
1: um, I mean the, the fundamental role of the job is to ensure that the government and specifically the Prime Minister and the cabinet gets the best possible independent rigorous scientific advice in order to be able to make evidence-based policy and that advice sometimes will be palatable and sometimes maybe less palatable and I think it's an important thing to get that mechanism right to ensure that science impacts across policy, so science to inform policy, science for resilience, so for the um, ability of the country to withstand things, whether that's a security issue or a natural uh um problem flooding climate and so on science for um the economy and increasingly and importantly science for citizens which i think is a key area you know w- what does it mean to have a live in a, a, a very scientific world which i think is what's what we do now we're mm. increasingly going to do
0: mm. and how, how much of this is you going out to permanent secretaries and saying look how can we help you and how much is it problems suddenly rushing in on your desk
1: yeah it's it's a mix but it's uh, there's an awful lot of going out and saying Uh, where might science help? So it varies across departments. Some departments, I think, have got a very strong uh, heritage of knowing where science fits in, and science impacts a lot. And in other departments, it's less so. And I think, you know, one of the things that I picked up quite early on was it's possible to have a conversation that goes along the lines of, um, thank you for coming to see me. Um, We don't have any chemists in this department, therefore I'm not sure that we need science. Um, If you turn the question round though, this is what's encouraging and important, if you turn the question round and say, have you got any problems, then the answer is yeah, I've got lots of problems. Okay, so let's talk about those problems in terms of where science might Mm. um, help solve them. And and there, there's a very openness, even in those departments that wouldn't traditionally be thought of as having a science need to Mm. understanding how science can impact.
2: Mm
0: and so so if you look out over your you know, four years 10 months that you've got to you've got to go is changing this, this uh, changing that mindset or just spreading that mindset about how science might be used in government is i think it's is, a key, it's, it's a i think there,
1: there, there are there two bits that i'd really like to get right inside government one is the science advice network and the chief scientific Advisors, i think are an extremely important resource they need to be the roles mm. need to be constituted properly So they need to be roles that actually have influence. What does that mean? Well, I think that in some cases, there's been more of a desire to say, chief scientific advisor, tick, than chief scientific advisor, I've got the right person in a role (coughs) they can do with the right level of influence in a department. So getting that job description bit right and appraisal bit right. But then also looking at the question about, we've got 15 chief scientific advisors. Hmm. If they work as a network and a team, they are unbelievably useful across government. And I had an interesting conversation with one of the permanent secretaries yesterday, sorry, one of the ministers yesterday, who said, oh, I hadn't really thought about the idea that I could access science across disciplines, and actually the need that we were talking about was around artificial intelligence and the application of that. Well, you, you, you may not have that expertise in your department, but we have got it in other CSAs. So having that CSA group act as a real team where they can work with each other uh, work across government I think is critically important and then the other side of it which you know you mentioned is how do we ensure that the pull for science and the understanding of science and the ability to frame questions in a way that's understandable and attract and tractable by science is something sure. that the civil service we need to work on and I know Chris Wormold in the policy profession is very keen to work on that as well.
0: What about scientific research to answer questions that government wants answered? Do do you see that, I mean, something that, um, some some of it being done within government, or do you reach into, um, you know, research labs around the world?
1: So, uh, each department now has published its areas of research interest. Mm. Um, and they're not all published but nearly all published um, those are a good start so it's great that they've been written down um, as you might expect they're a bit variable mm. and people have approached them in different ways I and mean, um, what's
0: the form they take the things we'd like things we sold. would like
1: to know no. that we don't know that no. we think you know, this would be good for research so that's, yeah. I think that's a really important step and you know, we'll learn about what best practice looks like and how to get a bit more consistency and they can't be static documents they need to be living documents updated mm. on, on a reasonable basis And um, that then becomes the Request list. So it's a request list to UKRI, it's a request list to the academic community, it's a request list to inside government as well. And when I look at the mechanisms to answer research questions, there's some internal capability and capacity, more in some areas than others. Uh, There's the link to UKRI, which provides a huge opportunity to then make sure we get the calls in the right place. There ought to be a very strong network through into UK academia, and importantly through to UK science in business. Which I think is underutilized mm. as a source of this, um, and uh, departments have the option to, in some cases, do it inside, to commission outside, to link outside, to put out a call for proposals. There, those mechanisms all need to be uh, really good and make sure that they are tailored for the department. Mm. They'll be different in different. That
0: sounds like a great wish list, but. Um We can imagine that that just doesn't happen in some way. I mean, okay, they've all all got a statement of what they'd like to know now. How, How does that actually get taken? forward. Do, do universities look at that list? Do you, do you urge universities to look at that list and say, look, we'd like answers to this? Do you uh, go to yeah. com- companies and say, look, um, look, we, we really need to know this?
1: Well, so, so the, um, I mean, there may be, it may be an absolute urgent imperative, in which case there's the mechanism that I can call people in or somebody can call people in and get them around yeah. the table to talk about it yeah. and, and see what we want to do, yeah. or there may be a very specific commissioning. But if you take the areas of research interest... The CSA for uh, Department of Works and Pensions went on a, with his team on a, uh, on a tour of universities and talked mm. about it. And so, these are things we're interested in, these are the things mm. that we care about, these are the things we'd like to know, and that's actually mm. had a good response. Mm. And uh, with UKRI, oh, British
0: universities, yes, yes.
1: And with UKRI, those things have been uh, fed into the process for the Strategic Priorities Fund, mm. and so. Uh, when the applications for the Strategic Priorities Fund come in, there's clearly a lens through which they're going to be looked at, which is, are they helping to address some of these questions? Not, Mm. how do you answer the question? So it's important, the Haldane principle, which is very often misunderstood, doesn't preclude government from asking and saying what it's interested in. What it Mm. says is, don't tell a researcher how to answer the question. Tell them what the question is.
2: Mm.
0: Um, yeah, we'll be doing something on that later later in the year. Um, whether or not Haldane is misunderstood, and I absolutely agree with you. We did um, a project uh, launch recently on academic liaison with, with government and what could be done to get it to, to work to work better. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? About how to, um, without breaching the, this interpretation of the, uh, uh, the Haldane principle, um, how to get that, that working better.
1: Well, I, I read the report, and, mm. and I agree with a of, lot, lot of uh, things that are in there in terms of how that might work. And I think you, know, you identified a number of areas in which uh, it's important to get right. One of them is networks. I mean, it sounds a bit sort of soft, but it's true. It's the network of academics that you're linked to. And I will add again, it's not just academics. I think there is a fundamental mistake in the way we think about getting advice, which is I'll get eight academics around the table, or... Conversely, I'll get eight CEOs around the company. Mm. There's a very important constituency missing, which is what about getting eight people who are actually doing R&D in industry? industry.
0: Well, I was was going to come on to that because I mean, a lot of the research is going to be. be Uh, happening there what's the willingness of both sides to work with each other
1: I think pretty high actually I think I don't I don't see a resistance so the networks are important as as a mechanism I think uh, many departments have scientific advisory committees Uh which are quite important mechanisms I think the ability to access the policy research units (laughs) as they exist is quite important Um, I have uh, the Council for Science and Technology, which advises Mm. the Prime Minister. So I think there are different mechanisms used Mm. to link with academia. And I I do think, you know, again, going back to the areas of research interest, it's the first time that it's been possible to understand what is it government thinks it needs to know the answer Mm. to. Mm. And that's a really big step forward. And and you can already sense... Why, why
0: Why is it the first time? I and It was obvious I, in the war. Um, yes, I think,
1: well, it's obvi- it's, it's obvious at times of emergency yes, what it is you yes, need to do, which and is why hu- you had these huge technological and usually, accelerations during during, exactly. during the wars. Yeah. And, then, and then I think it sort of you know dissipates when it doesn't mm. seem doesn't seem so urgent. But mm. I, I think you know given the rate and pace and the reach and extent of scientific advance now, mm. it's, it, it, you know, it's it's really not very sensible to to ignore that, and, mm. and you need to frame the questions in the right way.
0: Mm. Just, just sticking on the private sector for, um, for a moment, does it make a difference, do you think, to collaboration if the companies are foreign-owned?
1: Well, it may do. It, it certainly would in, in security areas, mm. it could do. But I think in general, um, it depends what you're asking. So, I mean, if, if it's advice about um, an area that they're going to have an interest in or knowledge of, it's unlikely to make much of a difference that they're foreign-owned, mm. I suspect.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's come on to the use of evidence in government, um, which is rather different, and that's often come under the wing of the person in your job or a a kind of general exhortation to use evidence better. Um, Where do you feel the civil service and and ministers are on this, um, on the the use of evidence in making policy and in making decisions?
1: Well, I've I've yet to have a conversation with somebody who says, I'm not interested in evidence. Now, it doesn't mean that that's how they behave, but yeah. no one's turned up that so I'm not interested in evidence, I'm just going to make it up as I go along. Um, so I think there is a general belief that evidence is important, but the question is what, what forms that evidence yeah. take? And I, I see two, 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 two areas. The first is there is a tendency in our constant scientific evidence, mm. there's a tendency sometimes for science to be portrayed as complex, difficult, technical, something that only I understand. You know, as a scientist it's good that you don't understand what I do. And that's not, that is not a very good way to get evidence across to people. So I think the technical aspects of it need to be overcome. On the other side, I don't think we're good at framing the question. What is it that I want to understand? What is the problem? That, so I think those are two areas that are quite important to tackle. There is a third, which is um, less important in a sort of structural sense, but can be quite damaging, which is the belief that just because I'm a scientist, my opinion carries more weight than yours does. That's really damaging. In other words, the scientists need to give evidence, not give an opinion based on the fact they are a scientist. So I think um, one, of the, one of the great challenges is, is evidence synthesis, and, and maybe a striking example is if you just look over the last year, there's something like 45,000 papers written on obesity.
0: Gosh. Well,
1: how are you going to... Well,
0: worldwide you, how, or British? Worldwide.
1: worldwide. How worldwide. are you possibly going to get your head <laughs> around Around that, so I think the, the notion yeah. of synthesising the evidence into something that's yeah. manageable, and uh, you know, I was co-author with some others on some principles around that that came out a f- yeah. couple of weeks ago, and I think there's principles arrived right, which are be inclusive, make sure that when you're thinking about the question you're trying to address, you have the right diversity of research uh, thought about, and you have the policy makers at the table, so you're not doing something that they're not interested in. I think it needs to be rigorous, you need to make sure that you access all of the evidence you're trying to access, so you're not just saying I'm going to only access the stuff that I can get hold of easily or I'm only going to look at certain types of evidence it needs to be you need to be absolutely transparent about the method and how you've done it what assumptions you've made what have you chosen not to look at because you think it's not right for this and also what conflicts you've got and really importantly, it needs to be accessible because i think you know science advances by challenge and you know one of the uh, the mistakes i think is to view science as some absolute truth i mean science hmm. tries to get to truth and it's then challenged and corrected hmm. and so that self-correcting nati- nature even of evidence synthesis means you need to make it accessible so people can look at it challenge it hmm. don't like the methods don't like the answer but i think evidence synthesis in a way that's accessible is really important
0: hmm. and can you give us a, a flavor of some of the live questions in the, in the in the next couple of years that government is trying to crack Some of the, some of the bigger ones. Obesity might be well.
1: I, I, uh, might I, I, might be one. I mean, obesity is clearly remains an important area. Yeah. Uh, uh, the whole climate change issue isn't yes. going to go away. I mean, Nick Stern was, I think, extremely powerful on this when he talked about the three doublings: doubling of world infrastructure in 50, 15 years, doubling of world economy in twenty years, doubling of the world uh, urban population in, in, in forty years. Put that together, that mm-hmm. tells you there's a, still a, a very significant challenge there. Um, uh, mobility, mm. you know, what's going to happen with um, uh, autonomous vehicles, and our ability to get around increasingly congested cities. Uh, those are big topics on the agenda of government, which all have a scientific uh, impact. And, of course... Mm artificial intelligence and machine learning mm. with all the good and potential that has to unlock things mm. uh, also comes with its challenges and, and all of those mm. things are, are, are mm. going to be important in ranging from health right the way through to how we think about um, financial trading mm. or, or, or um, mobility.
0: And do you have a, a short list in your mind of, of uh, you know the big problems like this that, that, that you will want to discuss with uh, ministers and the Prime Minister over the next few years. Yeah, and I think
1: um, uh, you know some of that is laid out, obviously, in the framework of the industrial strategy mm-hmm. and um, the Prime Minister's speech from a few weeks ago. I think started to lay out some of the key missions that might need to be uh, tackled, and I think those are the ones that, that we absolutely you know agree from 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 Government Office of Science perspective are key things. So you know, can you now m- use some of the huge amounts of data and um, opportunities in health to apply it to the health system properly mm. so early diagnosis treatments so on that's really important can you look at um uh, the uh, energy consumption and output on housing key area to look at so i think those are those are high on the list in terms of things that in that we we we're, we're looking at at the moment which are which are uh, I think are important as well. So I've talked about mobility. That's mm. going to be a key area. And um, uh, we're also looking at um, rural uh, rural life and actually what the impact of scientific changes on rural life might be. So I think those are some top areas to think about.
0: All right, really interesting. And then Brexit, uh, hanging over many of our conversations. Um, what's the impact on what you're doing? The science where we were discussing next door, I thought the, you know, the science... Um, um, community and universities and everything had got very fast out of the traps in, uh, after the referendum in saying look this is how it affects us and, and made a case but where, where are we now on that?
1: Well I think uh, there are three things really that, which are big external influences. Brexit, industrial strategy and the formation of UKRI are the right, three big right. externals that are impacting and Brexit yeah. of course is, is, is a very uh, live and important issue around that. Mm. Um, I, I, I think a few things. First of all the UK science base is absolutely unambiguously dependent upon international science so anything that we do to uh, become more inward looking, to become less open to collaboration is damaging for UK science, no question about it um, and linked to that is uh, issues of mobility of people and mm. their families. Um, there's no question that that needs to be a high priority. And I think you know the prime minister has been as clear uh, she can be that she wants uh, to have a, um, a deal where we fully associate with the EU uh, research framework. Um, that she recognises that international mobility of scientists is crucial. And, you know, I've just said I completely agree with that. It's absolutely essential that we get to that. And um, these are things which we need to ensure that whatever happens during the Brexit negotiations, those things don't get disrupted. And, you know, if I've got a concern, it's around... um, If you're not a scientist, you might think that if you stopped a programme for two months, you pick it up again in two months' time. Mm. You ask anyone who's ever moved a laboratory, what's the downtime on moving a laboratory? And the sort of common accepted wisdom is it takes two years to pick it up again. Now, it's the same if you disrupt something. If you disrupt something for two months, it doesn't pick up again in two months. It can pick up a year, 18 months later, and you lose an edge. So it's really important that we keep momentum going. The good news is that scientists are, by nature, collaborative. And mm. you know, good scientists will go and seek the person that they need to work with. They'll seek the team. They'll seek the technique. And it's difficult to stop that. So I think I'm optimistic that international collaboration is something that will always be a key feature of what we do. We just need to make sure that as we go through this process, we don't do anything that throws that off course.
2: Hmm.
0: But the, um, the Europeans might, uh, of course. I mean, how damaging would it be to the UK to be shut out of Galileo? And oh, so on?
1: Damaging, I, th- I think, I think uh, of, of EU programmes specifically. I mm. mean, you know, we've said we want to be part of Galileo, and that's, that's mm. the desired outcome. Um, uh, you know, there would be maybe alternatives if we're not, but, I mean, the desired outcome is to be part of, uh, of the European programmes, for sure. And I think the Europeans... European scientists are very keen for us to be part of European programmes as well. And it's a two-way thing. I mean, European science is on our doorstep. They are, you know, there's fantastic science there. Hmm. There are really good scientists who want to work with the UK and want to work with each other. Those partnerships have taken quite a long time to build up. They're things that we need to cherish because they're valuable.
0: Hmm. And you mentioned UKRI. Um, um, Good, bad, neutral from...
1: Uh, Well, I think think the notion of bringing together um, the research councils to create a more interdisciplinary uh, opportunity is exactly right. And so I think I'm a strong supporter of that. Um, And one only has to look at the Strategic Priorities Fund to see how you could get more um, cross-disciplinary science to tackle problems. Um, And I think it's not easy. So I think it's a big task to bring together the research councils, make all that work and not become consumed with the bureaucracy of that, rather Mm. than the purpose Mm. of that, which is to fund science and to get things moving. So I think they're doing a really good job of of trying to do that, and we need to do everything we can to help that move along. Because what we don't need, what science never needs, is uh, layers of bureaucracy in research funding. Mm. I mean, there's something about the UK system which has been pretty effective at funding science, which is, you know, you put in a good proposal, you get it, you get the money, you get on with it.
0: Mark Wolpert uh, previously in your job is, is now head of UKRI and obviously has enormous influence over the distribution of funds within that but ultimately it's a minister's decision um, to say look look, what, what are our priorities do, you, do you, uh, you think the whole thing becomes hostage to someone coming along saying look global Britain or whatever we've got to concentrate on STEM stuff uh, forget all these social sciences um, let's um, pursue this particular course in the future Does, doesn't it make it more uh, I don't know why, I don't ac- know why makes... more
1: I don't know why that makes actually. it more vulnerable to that, actually. I mean, mm. that's, that, that is a reality of, the, of yes. the political system, and it's always been like that, yes. that the minister decided how much you know, ultimately mm-hmm. he wanted, went in different areas. So I don't think there's any change there, actually. Mm. And, um, and, of course, there's still. I'm very impressed, by the way, with the, the um, appointments to the heads of the Research Council. I mean, they're not mm. shrinking violets. Mm. These are the people who really are um, high-quality, leading scientists who will make their... Right voices heard for their Mm. disciplines and then you've got an overarching body which can do that as well. So I think it's rather Mm. a powerful system actually.
0: Mm -hmm. And finally let me um, bring you on to the question of accountability, partly because the Institute's running a project at the moment on accountability in modern government, uh, modern complex government and uh, how ministers, uh, officials, um, heads of public bodies, uh, local government and so on should be held account. Um, for the decisions that they take. What, what, what's your feeling about this in terms of uh, the advice that uh, the scientific <coughs> advisors give through, through government?
1: Well, I think I, I, I'll make it personal. My, my advice is... My job is to give advice, mm. and that advice needs to be rigorous, it needs to be independent, and it needs to be justifiable in terms of the scientific evidence. Uh, if I fail to do that, then I'm accountable. Mm. But once I've done that, it's not... I don't make the decision. I mean, this is a political process where politicians make decisions and um, it's perfectly understood that a politician may make a different decision from the one where the evidence base suggests that's what should happen. Um, but I think that what's important in that process is, is the transparency of what the evidence base is and therefore the decision is made uh, and, and ministers are accountable for decisions.
0: Mm-hmm. How transparent do you think it should be? Should the public be able to interrogate these kind of decisions that are taken?
1: Well, I do think that that when, uh, um, all, except in very specific circumstances, maybe around national security or whatever, Mm. I think the notion that the synthesis of evidence is a public uh, um, accessible document, it comes to the accessibility principle that I talked about, is important. And the reason it's important is because science should be open to challenge. And the moment science isn't open to challenge, it's very difficult to really know that you've got it right. And, you know, for me, it's one of the fundamental principles of science that you do something, you make it known that you've done it, and then other people challenge it. And Mm. they'll, you know, you're going to be wrong sometimes, you're going to be right sometimes. So I think that is a fundamental process. And then (coughs) to build on that, it means to present the scientific evidence as infallible or absolute is a big mistake. It's not. It's just the best that we can do today in terms of the evidence we have.
0: Okay. On that note, let's, let's go to questions because I think there will be quite a few as there are Start over there.
1: Hi, uh, Simon Judge from the Government Finance Function. Um,
3: thank you very much for your, your comments. I'd like to ask a question about the sort of scope of the role in particular, how it fits with social sciences, which you haven't said a lot about this morning. Um,
1: you know, within government, the analytical function are trying to strengthen themselves and to uh, do very many of the same things that, that you're trying to do. And I, I guess the risk that's knocking around at the back of the mind is you know, there's a bit of a risk of two lots of scientists, hard scientists and social scientists, all making similar messages into poly- policy makers. How, how do you avoid that? Well, I, I don't see the divide, as I said earlier on. I think that science is there to answer problems and trying to address problems. At one level, in an academic sense, that problem might be, I just don't know enough and I'd like to know some more, so pure science. And, and at the, the um, more development end, if you like, it's, um, it's here's a specific problem I'd like to address. And if you try and approach that with one scientific method, one technique, one discipline, you're likely to fail. So I think the integrative approach to answering problems is crucial. Um, When we look across the areas of research interest, um, the two things that come out most commonly across all the areas of research interest in government, one is data, not surprisingly, and the second is behavioural science. And so it tells you that the behavioural science, you know, which has got the... Word science, as indeed social science, as the word science in the title, is clearly a crucial part of government scientific advice and needs to be. And it's the one area that I think, and I've spoken to uh, David Halpin about this, is what we might do to really think about what strengthening that social science, behavioural science input looks like. Practically, what do we need to do to do that?
0: Great. Uh, Over here.
4: Hello, I'm Sevin from the Department for Education. Uh, You touched on artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, I wanted to know what you think the biggest challenges are for government coming from these new technologies and how we should prepare.
1: Yeah, um, well, I think think there are a number of problems with with trying to get any of these things done, whether it's in government, whether it's in big companies, whether it's in other places, which is, um, I mean, a few years ago, big data was the answer, now what's the question? And at the moment, it's artificial intelligence, machine learning is the answer, and what's the question? And, and so there is a really big issue about what do we want to apply this to? Where is it most ready to be applied now? Where might it be applied as the research advances and make sure that we apply it where it's going to be most useful now, but also with a, with a view to where it could become helpful in the future. And I, I had an interesting conversation with the head of um, uh, Verily, which is, used to be called Google X, it's their sort of research bit, um, about a year or so ago, where he said um, his view, and, and I think he's probably right, is, is that um, uh, a lot of the machine learning and artificial intelligence areas are going to be much, much more impactful than people think, but in a <laughs> narrower area than most people think. And so the challenge, I think, of picking up new technologies, is applying it in the right place. And for me, there are some places now where you can really think about this. And I've, I've talked about one, which is around um, some of the health aspects. Um, I, I think you know, where AI is going to be particularly useful is pattern recognition that, that we're not very good at. Uh, um, and so pattern recognition is key. I think um, clearly uh, there's a danger you use it just for simply trying to optimise what you already do rather than change what you do, that's always a risk that you just look at your current process and say I'm going to apply it here and optimise it um, and I think we need to be much more willing to do proper pilots understand the outcome of that pilot and then scale and that I think is, is, is you know how it's going to have to be done and at the moment I would say governments in the multiple pilot phase there needs to be a bit of sort of look at where it's going to be useful and where you now want to try and scale some of those pilots. And By the way, it's exactly the same with big companies. Mm. Uh, Over
0: here, second row.
2: Thank you. I'm Heider from uh, TDR Capital. Um, It should be fascinating to see all these problems across uh, the different departments. Imagine you got 10 billion to put towards the three projects you thought would make the biggest impact over the next five or ten years where would you put those 10 billion to work? And secondly, in your role as China's chief scientific advisor, do you have any way to influence where the money goes? Or is that a political decision? And afterwards, your role is to make sure that the money, wherever it will go, will have the biggest impact in that field. Where does the scope of the role? Right. So, so
1: let, me, let me deal with the last um, question first. Um, my role is not a, uh, a one to distribute research funds. That is UKRI. Um, we do, of course, have research spend within government, and that is part of you know what I need to make sure that we get that right inside government. Um, so it's it's not a it's not a role to either give out the money or to sort of do the checks that the money is spent properly, but it is one that says how does science impact policy, and a sort of policy does impact on that question of where we choose to spend money and how we choose to evaluate it. Um, in terms of where I would spend um, the money, um, how much did you give me?
0: 10, bi- Ten billion, as it is. What, in
1: one lump sum? <laughs> <laughs> uh, OK. Um, well, okay, it's interesting, because my, actually my research budget my last job was three billion a year. Uh, OK, so, um, and you can, uh, and so I, I do think that one of the things that we need to do is to put more explicit funding into what we mean by development versus research. So when I look at the UK, we are outstandingly good at academic research. No question. Whatever measure you use, we come out very well we're not so good at the ability to turn that into something useful, whether that's something useful for government, whether it's something useful uh, commercially, we don't do as well. We're not bad at it, but there's there's an imbalance between those two. So I think one of the things we need to do is to be very clear about the amount we want to spend on development and how we want to target that. And the reason I think that's important is if you know what percentage you want to spend on development and research, you can start to protect research, Because once you start spending on development, you can suck the whole budget into that if you're not careful. So you need to protect research, but also strategically grow the development side of it. So where would I do that? I absolutely think we've got a world-leading position around machine learning and artificial intelligence. We should do something there uh, and apply it in the areas where there are opportunities, and I've listed a couple of them today. I link to that, I think inside government, uh, data visualisation is part of that as well. So the ability to see things in a way that's instantly accessible. There was a wonderful uh, article in Nature by Kofi Annan a a couple of months ago in which he described seeing uh, data visualisation maps of Africa showing trends from health to economics to supply chain, and he describes how it completely changed his thinking about policymaking there. So I think that's another uh, key area. And I I do think that the the opportunity in health I've talked about, I won't go there again, but I do think this question of what is the transport system that we want in this country to be fit for the future and to be clean in the way we do it is critically important.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and do you count within that military research, much of which is now cyber stuff, do you, do you sort of think of that separately? Or does it No, that's part, in, that's part in, in, of the role. In it's part
1: yeah. of the role. And yeah. I think, you know, if you look, if you look there, some of us are exactly the same thing. So data visualisation is key. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, quantum computing is going to be absolutely key. And quantum sensing. But I mean, quantum computing is going to be key because, you know, whoever cracks quantum computing at scale suddenly has a big advantage in terms of all the other cryptography is probably a bit meaningless so that's a big area to to, 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 to mm. get right and I think the third area from a, from a, um, a defence area is the advances in biology and synthetic biology are pretty huge mm. at the moment and one needs to think about that in terms of um, mm. uh, security issues mm.
0: Thanks for that uh, Here, second row We've got good times so I, I should get everyone in
5: Uh, Rachel Quinn Academy of Medical Sciences as Patrick knows the academies see a big part of their role in helping you to network into the experts and doing the evidence synthesis my question for you was about trust in experts after the referendum there was a rumor the um, you know the time of the expert was over have you picked that up at all in your new role
1: well I'll give you one story which I mean uh, very often those sorts of quotes are attributed to individuals and, and, and Michael Gove has been picked for somebody who said that actually he's probably the most evidence-based, science-friendly person DEFRA have had in there for quite a long time and I know that the DEFRA CSA Even would say... Even though this say,
0: expert's quote is going to hang over him, yeah, him mean, for life. you know, yeah. he's
1: pulling on experts' side. So I think, I, 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 it, like you, I was a bit concerned when I started hearing those things. I don't honestly think it's yeah. what's happening at all. And I think people recognise. It does go back to the point I made uh, earlier on. It's one. It's very different to say I am an expert, therefore, therefore, here's my opinion, and my opinion counts more than yours. That, that's not true unless it's absolutely evidence-based on things you really know about. And I think that's that, that is that is a danger that you know, non-specific expert advice is not very helpful.
0: Very well put oh, here, and then.
2: Hi, Ami Ami Banerjee from um, University College London, I'm a clinical academic and a data scientist and I'm um, asking about capacity and conflict of interest. So under your issue of the development, which is an area that we have to develop in the UK, is one explanation that um, we, we need more research or development capacity and particularly engaging... The, the practitioners i 'm uh, speaking in the healthcare sector yeah. where research is often a separate silo yeah. um, so, so I wondered if you'd comment on how how we can tackle that and and secondly, in data science specifically and in healthcare, we have some very large um, people in, in very large companies in the playground who who um, are dominating AI who are dominating the data science space in hospitals, electronic health records, and mainly American providers. How can we um, make sure that um, British science um, thrives and its interest is is served in in, in policy?
1: Yeah, so I I think um my, my comments about R and D are, are actually exactly aligned with that which is if, you, if you're clear about what, how much you want to spend on D versus R you start to make your strategic decisions in line with that which could include capacity and capability building in an area um, If you look at the government uh, target to move uh, our percentage spend on R and D from what's currently about 1.7% to 2.4% um, there's public money going in which will take it up to nearer to one9 but actually there's an expectation that private money will come in as well and if you look at the current situation um, uh, the whatever it is 165,000 people who work in private sector R&D in this country spend 16 billion pounds which is more than the public sector spend we need to ramp that up even further it should be a ratio of if you look across the world two to one moving up to three to one so there's a real need to pull that in now your, your question, uh, so there is a capacity building, your question then is about how do you make sure that when you do that, you do that in the right way and you don't end up becoming disabled in this I think is a critical one as well and that needs some thinking about what you want to do and we're pretty good at that area of, of AI and machine learning in lots of startups, and actually some of it, <laughs> I think across the world, DeepMind is seen as absolutely cutting edge in one particular aspect of that and um, although that's now you know linked to a US company, it's UK signed or UK base, scientists international come into the UK base. I think what we do need to do, though, is make sure that we're clear about where we do have boundaries on, on these things. And in the health service, there's clearly a massive public issue around trust and data and the ability to access that, which is an important one to get right. Otherwise, this will not go you know, in a way that we think it should do to help people. My final comment is, um, very often it seems to me that we are now lacking um, a systems engineering approach to some of these problems. So um, if you go back to you know, the most famous mission of all, which is the man on the moon mission, uh, Richard Muller in his book Physics for Future Presidents describes how all the bits were there, and his words, all you had to do was simply put it together and make it happen. Now, it wasn't that simple, but the fact is he's right. All the technologies were there, and I think we're there in health, we're there in a number of areas. Lots of the technologies are there... It's a question of how you put that together to make that work. And that's a systems engineering problem. So I'm, I'm a big advocate for bringing in more systems engineering. And you, know, you don't do that without bringing in the social science side of this as well, because you, you, you know lots of these things will fall over because you've failed to understand the social dimensions of, of what it is you're trying to achieve. Great. Uh, Jill, here
0: in the front.
5: Hi, I'm Jill Rutter from the Institute for Government, and I used to work on evidence and policy and on science advice in government. Um, with Sense About Science, Steph um, from Sense About Science sitting next to me, uh, Sense About Science has been producing a sort of um, not quite annual assessment of the transparency of the evidence base behind hmm. government policy. Can we tell what that is? And uh, frankly, one of the most dispiriting meetings I ever went to, was a meeting when Tracy Brown, his Chief Executive About Science, Science, and I went to with Mark Walpert and the Chief Scientific Advisor Network to present uh, the idea that we were going to do this assessment of the transparency of evidence space. And the reason it was really dispiriting was it seemed to me that the Chief Scientific Advisor Network had incredibly high-powered invigil- individuals who seemed very cowed by their role in the policy process. Uh, for example, once we suggested we might do this transparency assessment, they said, well, departments will just game that, won't they? They'll just stuff in loads of references so you say they're being transparent and things like that, which struck me as very odd because I thought the CSAs might feel a bit of responsibility, and a bit of ownership of the evidence base. So my question is whether there are institutional changes we could make, not to say ministers don't have a final decision or whatever, but to bolster the... Ability of scientific advisors to really mobilise the evidence base and ensure it gets a decent hearing before ministers and others make the decision, which is, of course, their complete prerogative yeah. to do.
1: Uh, well, I won't comment on the meeting. That's your, your <laughs> you observations on you the meeting. There. I wasn't there and don't know. But um, uh, I, I think I've uh, said that there are two things around the CSAs I think are crucially important. One is around the process of appointment, job description, objective setting, appraisal, which I think needs to be improved and I think the CSAs need to work as a team and uh, the team is much more powerful than the individual and uh, I think it's definitely the case that some CSAs do not have the influence in their departments that I think they would like and I would like, and I think uh, that's one thing that needs to be looked at. And so I that
0: ring, rings true to you? It, well, uh,
1: I, I think, is there an opportunity for the CSAs to be the powerful team right the way across the top of government in terms of science? Yes, and that's what I'm uh, hoping to do, and we're getting together early in September to have a couple of days to discuss exactly that issue. Okay, great.
0: Here, here on the aisle.
1: Hi, Patrick. I'm Dougal Goodman from the Foundation for Science and Technology. In Greg Clark's speeches, he always refers at some point to place and the role of the regions. In the CSA network, are you envisaging areas of interest being published by regional bodies? As well as departments. Uh, Well, you've you've sort of asked me a version of that question before, which is uh, how well linked are we with um, CSAs that might exist in regions or in cities? And the answer, I think, is we haven't been well linked in. And uh, thanks to your prompting, I'm looking into it and thinking about how how we might, uh, might might look at that. I think it is a crucial area that we, I mean it goes back to my comment about science for citizens I mean science cannot be something that sits in elite laboratories separate from society and serves some minority science is actually about improving lives and keeping people safe across the country and uh, therefore there needs to be a regional dimension to this but I haven't yet got into the question of how we link in with CSA's in regions and in where they exist in, in cities. And um, I'm very conscious of biting off too much too early.
0: Thanks.
3: Uh, <clears throat> David Walker, Guardian Public and Occasional Columnist of Research Fortnight. And um, you've several times mentioned synthesis. A name missing from the uh, piece that you and colleagues did in Nature a couple of weeks back was that of David Sweeney. David is head of Research England. Research England is looking after... REF 2021. REF, like its predecessor, does not prize work of synthesis. It prizes original research and its uh, introduction into impact without prizing synthesis. How does one align the incentive structure for university scientists, universities being the main place where a lot of them do their work, such that in the next few years, they are going to be willing to do, incentivized to do that work of bringing together uh, uh, evidence and not doing the original research that REF 2021 seems to prescribe.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I think we did touch on that in the article, actually, and explicitly raise that question that it needs to be part of an assessment process and valued for what it is. I think the fact that article was published in Nature is not a trivial observation. I don't think that's the sort of article that would have appeared in Nature a few years ago. Um, I think in some areas, so um, definitely in medicine, this notion of evidence synthesis, particularly around things like meta-analyses and so on, has been valued for quite some time. So I think there are examples where it's been valued. And I think it's also valued in the impact uh, part of the REF exercise. But I agree with your basic premise that this is a form of research which needs to be valued and properly judged and properly um, credited in any uh, research assessment process.
3: Hi, Sam Alvis from the Wellcome Trust. You've touched on um, industrial strategy and the missions under it, and I wanted to, uh, to wonder if you could comment on the scale needed to achieve some of these missions, and whether the UK is in a position to do yeah. it on its own, and whether you have links in with similar processes underway in the U- yeah. European Framework programmes. Well, it's a great, Thanks. great question.
1: And if I've got a fear, it's that we... Because you know, things become flavour of the month, and missions become flavour of the month, so we have 400 missions well, you know, that is not going to work. I mean, these things require significant resource, significant
0: I'm sorry,
1: uh, what are the 400 missions? Well, at uh, uh, the uh, moment, we've, yeah. got, we've, got, we've got the four missions which the Prime thought, Minister yeah. talked about. Yeah. You know, my worry is uh, that uh, if they well. become flavour of yeah. the month and everything becomes yes. a mission, you dilute the uh, ability to yes. put a significant critical mass, which is your question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you just take the first mission about using AI to improve uh, the early diagnosis, treatment and prevention of disease. That's huge. That is a really big... Uh, thing to try and do. It's, it's achievable for all the reasons we've said, but it requires critical mass and focus on it. So personally, I'm not a fan of seeing many, many, many more missions. Let's get these ones properly uh, resourced, properly linked up. They will require international uh, scale to help them. They're not all going to be domestically achievable, and nor should they be. Um, but, of course, the solution needs to be a domestic one, by definition, because that's what we're trying to go after. So I think, I think making sure that we scale these properly is a, a very key part of the implementation of this. Um, and again, you know, a theme that I've picked up in several uh, answers, in a way, is we need to be good at implementation. You know, it's great to be good at discovery, and research, that's really important to protect. But being good at implementation is what needs to happen in some of these areas now.
0: Um, right right towards the back, and we do have time to get it on. Thank
1: you. Um, uh, the uh, aspect, Alex Murdoch, I'm a emeritus professor, but I was involved with knowledge transfer for many years. And one of the concerns I have is the focus from about 2015 has been around knowledge transfer as a means of wealth creation and that has really cut by a number of universities feel they no longer should think of knowledge transfer
3: in terms of uh, of social impact activity you know and that was the area that I was involved in do you think that uh, innovate uk may change the knowledge transfer focus to be a bit broader to include areas such as socially responsible organisations or social business going forward? Uh,
1: well, I think I answered in a previous question, and I'll repeat it, that I think the uh, translation of research into something useful can be in a number of domains, one of which is commercial, not the whole thing is commercial, and uh, you know, that's an important part of it. Um, I do think that... Um, There's another angle to this, which is very often the right way to create innovation, to create, uh, whether it's business opportunities, to create social good, is to to be very clear about what should be open knowledge transfer and what should be closed, protected knowledge transfer. And so, um, in many cases, uh, an open innovation approach to some of the data sources we have is much more likely, in my opinion, to be useful than to to say, I want to own 100% of that. And so I do have a worry, which is overprotection of IP too early. Uh, I do see a tendency, and I saw this in my last job globally, but I saw it specifically in the UK, there is a slight tendency to want to own 100% of nothing. And that is not a helpful way for knowledge transfer. You're better off giving some stuff away, allowing things to come up, and increasing the opportunity for multiple parties to potentially implement what's mm. there, and own the invention don't own the basic research that comes out. Make some of that more open. So I do think we've got to get that IP transfer right. And uh, to your, you know, the heart of your question, do I think that um, it, it, it all has to be about money-making? I absolutely don't. And I don't think it needs to be. I think we've got to be very careful about short-term um, money-making on this. I mean, ultimately, you need know, to do something good it's likely to bring wealth in in some form or another. You just need to make sure that you do it and you don't leave it stagnated because somebody's overprotecting it. H-
0: here by the door.
6: Thank you. Uh, David Richardson from AWE. Uh, Patrick, I think you were reasonably optimistic about the survival of global collaboration post-Brexit, You know, the, the, the natural uh, predilection of researchers to collaborate and so on, but imagining a situation where collaborative uh, R&D in Europe has been reduced or has, has been affected by Brexit do you think there is a case for new mechanisms or new policies to promote collaboration within the UK or for, with the, uh, other parts of the world, is that a, an area of policy you're having a look at, I thought it might relate to your points uh, about uh, greater engagement with the private sector or uh, a rebalancing between R&D
1: Well, I I definitely think that, that, and we touched on this in terms of UKRI, I think the notion of interdisciplinary research is key to answer problems. So I think, uh, uh, and UKRI will, I think, um, continue to fund interdisciplinary research and therefore foster collaboration domestically. Uh, I also think that uh, there are a number of funds which look at international science collaborations that exist. Those are important, um, and uh, I don't think that in any world Europe is our only international collaborator. Um, It's crucial that we build uh, the links that we need. I mean, we actually do more collaboration, I think, from the UK to the US than we do UK to Europe on individual grants and things. So that needs to be um, protected and and built on as well. And, of course, there are a number of growing science powerhouses across the world, Um, China definitely being one of them. Uh, where uh, collaborations will be crucial. So, again, I, I think although the Brexit question is important in terms of what's here and now, it, it, the international science question is a much more fundamental one. I
6: guess I was asking, uh, I whether you were thinking about this as a. Pro- Sorry, I, I was just wondering whether you were thinking about this as an area for policy focus, proactive policy to promote, or whether you feel that nature will take its course i suppose that, you know, no no.
1: A... i think you need to you need to make these things happen like, okay. i mean they, they don't i mean although i've said collaboration takes place organically among scientists i mean i was an academic for long enough 20 years to know that you've put a pot of money there we chase it and <laughs> so, that, so if you want to make that sort of collaboration happen you need to yeah. do that
0: on which note tom uh one of the authors of our academic liaison
1: report so tom sass researcher here at the institute and very pleased to hear you've read our, our recent report um you talked at the start about sort of ensuring the csa role in departments is properly constituted and sort of making that more effective uh, across government do you think it needs to be a full-time role um as you know that sort of about five of the current crop sort of double hat as uh, chief analysts or alongside other roles and do you have a view on whether they should be externally appointed from academia or or whether they come from business yeah. or within the civil service Okay, so um, I I think most of the CSA roles are not full-time, and so most of the CSAs have one day a week, some have two days a week where they keep an academic interest or some other interest, and some double up with um, uh, an analytics function as well. Uh, I'm not prescriptive about how that should be. I think it depends on the department, it depends on the individual. I'm much more interested in whether they've got the levers that they need to pull to be able to do the job properly and whether they've got the right skill set themselves to be able to do it. I similarly feel um, uh, rather um, agnostic about whether they come from um, academia, business, inside government, I feel very strongly about the quality of what they're bringing to the table and their skill sets and their experience and their ability to bring the right type of science into the department. So I I, I don't intend to sort of say, you know, it it must be this person or that person. I do think, though, that the general principle should be that these should be um, appointed by um, open competition.
0: Thanks very much. In the the middle here.
5: Jen Mason, civil service learning. Uh, in your view, what's the best recent example of evidence-based policymaking, and what can we
2: learn from how it was done?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, I, I don't know if it's the best example. I'll give you a, a recent example which you can sort of feel the impact of now, and it's important to see how this develops. I mean, I do think that the Uh, report that came out on uh, the future of the oceans had all sorts of important um, bits of policy uh, evidence for policy in it and I do think those bits of evidence are being picked up and are being applied. Now it's going to be interesting to watch that to see how that, that evolves but I think that tells you the power of a decent piece of work done with decent evidence behind it that can be used to implement decision-making um, you know I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to point to one thing and say that is the best example there are also lots of examples of course and it's as useful to look at this as things where the evidence has been ignored and it's worth asking the question why is that being ignored why, why was that never used in policy the other thing I want to say is that science is important to inform policy it's also crucially important and this is something to build up to look at the impact and, and outcomes of policy so I would like to see a bit more ramping up of the other side of it, which is how do we then assess whether, whether, whether the uh, change has actually done what, what we thought. And a really good example of that was um, some work done by the National Physical Laboratory a number of years ago looking at particulate measurement in air, clearly showing very high particulate levels. Low emission zones were introduced. NPL remeasured... <coughs> after that and you saw a very clear fall in the particulate level not to the level required new implementation of rules around low emission zones particulate measures go down again so there you've got a measurement input, policy, re you know, you, you can see what happened as a result of that that's a, a really good example of iterative uh, policy making and, 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 and adjustment in light of scientific evidence
0: Thanks. What I think is the last question here.
4: Yeah. Uh, Diane Beddoes, science-wise, um, there are dangerous or potentially dangerous political um, developments across Europe and in the US. Um, I'm interested in when you, as a chief scientific advisor, would say to ministers the potential impacts and outcomes of this particular question that you're seeking um, an answer to from science. Um, are uh, extremely dangerous. Um, thinking about how science has been used in the past to bolster very dangerous political movements.
1: Um, can, can you be more spe- more specific, exactly what you're asking?
4: Um, I suppose it's uh, around things like uh, racism, uh, conversations around oh, okay. eugenics. Uh, At okay. what point do you, yeah. where, where does your ethical, uh, the ethical dimension to your role come in?
1: Yeah, well, look, I've got – you're only going to read some things I've written in the past. Now I have have views on these things. And um, if you take the – I mean, one of the examples might be the uh, potential for algorithms in AI to embed uh, some social norm that you don't like or don't want – Um, which then becomes absolutely self-perpetuating. That is a very key scientific uh, question that needs to be absolutely spoken about, made clear, um, and that should not be hidden. And there are many other examples like that where where the science needs to flush out the truth and the evidence. I mean, I think you're also asking a slightly different question, which is at what point does a CSA say, you know, I'm going public on something? And, and of course... in any role, you hope not to have to do that. But of course, one of the reasons this role is set up like this is it is independent, and that is, you know, the ultimate position that you have to be able to say if something is really going in the wrong direction that you disagree with.
0: And can I ask you just finally, um, China uh, and its drive to, um, you know, do, do its own research to acquire intellectual property from all kinds of things—a threat to us or? Uh, help in the sense it's um, really pouring lots and lots of money into scientific research or both?
1: Well, I mean, they're currently constructing the biggest quantum research facility in the world at $10 billion, and um, they're going to be good at it. Mm. And uh, um, we can either say um, it, they're going to use it for things we disagree with, therefore we're not going to collaborate, or we can be part of a scientific endeavour to try and get that in the right, right direction and to make sure that we do collaborate and we benefit... Mutually, I mean, I think we shouldn't be naive about some of this stuff, but I, I think to, to ignore Chinese scientific advance because you're worried about um, other aspects of China, I think, is a mistake.
0: On that note, thank you for terrific questions. Thanks for coming this morning. Please join me in thanking Patrick Vallance.